0: Good morning. Today's reading is from Psalm 19, verse 1 through 14. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chambers and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the ends of the heavens and its circuit to the ends of the ends of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect reviving the soul the testimony of the lord is sure making wise the simple the precepts of the lord are right rejoicing the heart the commandments of the lord is pure enlightening the eyes the fear of the lord is clean enduring forever the rules of the lord are true and righteousness altogether more to be desired are they than gold even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from my hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuousness, sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgressions. Let the Lord of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated.
1: Welcome to church again. Um, Throughout this series, we've titled it The Anatomy of the Soul because it, it speaks to virtually every aspect of our humanity. Um, Whether you realize it or not, we live in a very curious tension in our culture right now. There's one aspect or one voice in our culture that says, okay, the most important part of who you are is really just captivated or trapped in your emotions, and therefore you just need to kind of live according to your passion. And there's, there's actually another voice that's clear over on the other end of the spectrum, and it says that you need to deny that emotion. And you have people like Tim Ferriss, that we're gonna look at here in just a moment, that is saying, what they're saying is that, okay, this disattachment of your emotion is gonna leave you the most, uh, the clearest perception of the world. And so two extremely different perspectives on how we actually live our interior life. Um, the Psalms, on the other hand, they, they present to us a capacity to live in a wholehearted way, not in denial of any aspect of our of our humanity, but able to really understand who we are and the best way to live from that. This morning, we're, we're looking at something that I, I, admittedly, I'm asking you to kind of consider a spin on Psalm 19. Psalm uh, 19. So, uh, David really isn't asking many questions at all, but he, he's asserting some conclusions that he had come to that answer an insatiable curiosity that I think resides in every single one of us. Um, from the time that we were toddlers and just asked that annoying and incessant question, why, In that case, it's the human mind that is just now beginning to perceive that there is such a thing as a cause and effect. And they wear you out because their mind is so curious that it knows no limits. And they ask you why over and over and over again. But is that really any different than a person's tearful plea when they lose a lifelong partner? Is the human mind any different at two than it is at 90? Or is it perhaps something that is at work within each and every one of us and it is going to drive us to some answers. It's going to drive you to make some conclusions. And those conclusions are going to be faith assumptions. You can't, they're not universally held today. They're not provable but nonetheless you're gonna to choose to believe them because this curiosity has to have some terminus to it. Psalm 19 is considered by most theologians as one of the most significant declarations of God's revealed truth in all the Bible. We're gonna look at one other one here in just a moment, but, but those disclosures are very different. The first part of it, it's almost divided in equal sections. The first part of it tells us what God sh- shows us from nature, and the second part of it shows, describes what it is that God reveals to us through the Bible. Theologians typically call the first part of it natural revelation and the second part of it special revelation, but both parts of it are extremely significant because they point us to what God intends, how he intends us to manage this in- insatiable curiosity. What we're to do with it, how we're to direct it. And so it's a very, very interesting passage for sure. sure. It's very short, very brief, but its impact is incalculable, I think, not only on us as individuals, but humanity in general. When uh, let's begin by looking at the answers that the psalm says that we can find from nature. The answers we can find from nature. The psalm opens with a description of truth and reality that is disclosed through our experiences in the creation itself. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. In verse 1, describes a testimony of God's existence and his imminent involvement in the creation that can be seen and experienced simply by looking into the sky. Now, I... I tend to think that 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 initial clause is referring to the night sky. Uh, One translation looks at it, it rendered it um, a starry vault. And so he's essentially calling us to admit that there's something that we can discern about whether there is a God by simply looking into the night sky. It's always been there and every human being that has vision can look into that sky and Discern something about the existence of God and what he has done in the world. <clears throat> the term for heavens in that first clause literally referred to a solid plate and that, that noun was derived from a verb that meant to stamp out or to beat out, something that you're actually leaving almost an imprimatur in. And what what he's saying is that The heavens themselves have been stamped out by God for a purpose, for a reason. And the translation, a contemporary translation in today's English version, reads this way. The sky shows us how wonderful God is, even more. It teaches, it makes very clear to us the great things he has made. Now from verses 2 through 4, the psalm portrays the extent to which this testimony is experienced, and it's pretty remarkable. And the term day-to-day pours out speech and night-to-night reveals knowledge is actually depicting kind of a time stamp. And not only is it saying that it's there from day-to-day and there from night-to-night as the earth would rotate, its a historical reference that's capturing the fact that there's never been a historical moment in which this testimony hasn't been like sent into the world no human being at any time at any place in the world has missed this and so the first is kind of a timestamp. the second the second is that there is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard And verse three refers to its intelligibility and He's basically saying, it's impossible to not get it. It's impossible to not see this. It's always intelligible. And then the last clause in verse 4, their voice goes throughout all the earth and their words to the end of the world, is a spatial reference that says there's no limitation to it. You can't be just outside, like I could step out of this light. He says you can't be outside of it. There's no way that you can miss this throughout history, throughout moments in time, not not understanding it in your mind or in any space. And that is an unbelievably descript enclosure that he makes there. Now, when we come to verse 5 and 6, those verses describe the particular testimony that God has disclosed by one aspect of the creation, the Son, And it's a poetic description that attributes to the sun actual human attributes. Like a bridegroom leaving his chamber depicts the provision or the benefit that a bridegroom was expected to provide for his bride. And he now reveals it breaking forward day to day in a way that he says it runs its course with joy. And so it's rising from the ends of the heavens and it circuits to the end of them and there is nothing hidden from them. In Verse 5b through 6 depicts God's common grace in which Jesus himself would describe in Matthew 5 and verse 45 where he says God causes the sun and the rain to fall on both the just and the unjust. Universal disclosure, universal understanding in one sense universal accountability. Now, when Paul takes up the same theme in the first chapter of Romans, he actually says the suppression of this. He, just like the psalmist, he's not admitting that there's people that miss it. Instead, he's saying that there is an accountability that comes from this that is remarkably condemning. He says it's it's literally the basis of all idolatry comes from from suppressing or pushing down with great. The verb that he uses in, in the first chapter of Romans is to press down with extremely great force. And this is how he says it, beginning in verse 18 of Romans 1. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, here it is, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. Of natural revelation and here paul attaches it to every form of false worship that emerges from the human heart it happens as a result of not listening to what you clearly knew what you clearly understood now before we shift to what david says in this psalm about how we can what we can understand from the bible i want you to give you some examples of people's curiosity today i think this is going to be very interesting for you In spite of the spectacular diversity of things that people believe today and how they transmit and communicate those to other people with very, very few exceptions, we all and each of us possess an insatiable curiosity about the principles that govern our world because those conclusions tell you everything about how you should live. And so there's very few exceptions where where people do not speculate or try to put some sort of a conclusion in that place of what you believe, about what governs our world. Now, the first example I want to give you is from a very, very prominent investment uh, individual. Um, Recently, Ray Dalio did an interview with Tim Ferriss on The Tim Ferriss Show. And Dalio is an amazing economic mind. He founded Bridgewater Associates that currently manages over $150 billion in global investments. CEO magazine named Dalio the Steve Jobs of investing. So this guy is not a piker. He's not some small peripheral voice. This person is at the center of our economic universe today. And he, he makes... He's a non-Christian, but he makes some surprising conclusions that are very consistent with what we believe as Christians about this. Listen to what what he said. He said, I'm a profound mistake maker. Being an entrepreneur requires one to bet against the consensus, and when one does that a fair amount of time, you're going to be wrong a fair amount of times. I've learned a lot more from my mistakes. So... I just want to let you know that any perception of being right is part of it. No. The main thing is knowing what you don't know and how to deal with it. He says, I lost everything. In retrospect, it really was the best thing that ever happened to me because it gave me the humility that I needed to become more successful And that was because I shifted my attitude from thinking I'm right to asking myself, how do I know I'm right? And that opened my mind a lot. It made me look for people who disagreed with the smartest and also made me manage my risk better and so on. Now, in the midst of the interview, Ferris asked him to go into a a series of decisions that he made in 1982 that led to complete bankruptcy. I mean, he had to borrow money from his dad and sell a second car, even just to survive. He had to lay off every single person that he hired, and it was down to just him. But in the midst of this, he has come out with a new book. It's actually called Principles, um, uh, subtitled Life in Business. But he comes up with this formula. The formula is pain plus reflection equals progress. Listen to this, these conclusions that he's come to. He says, I think for everyone... And for me at the time, when you encounter the the mistake, you experience in that pain an emotional pain. And that was true for me at the time. And then the pain passes and it requires thought and making the connection of what I did, what did I do wrong, and being analytical about it. And that was that experience and that led me to to do that as a habit. It became an increased habit. I would literally, every time I would make a mistake, I would develop an instinct. So it changed my attitude about mistakes. I think basically they became like puzzles. And if I solved the puzzle, the puzzle being that what would I do differently in the future, I would get a gem. And that gem would be a principle that would let me do a better job the next time that sort of thing came about. Now, all of that sets up this next statement. And he says, One of the things I've learned over the years is that many things happen as surprises because they never happened in one's lifetime before. So that it's advantageous to look beyond one's lifetime or beyond one's own experience to understand how the world works so that one can anticipate all of those things and learn all the rules of how the world works. And that's the beauty of it, right? That's the excitement, to learn how reality works. What are the cause-effect relationships, and then how do I deal with my realities? That is amazing. He goes on and speaks about, he, he's a remarkable historian, a uh, student of, of human history, Because he says, nothing new has ever happened. Everything has come before. And he sounds profoundly like Solomon when he talks about everything just repeating. Vanity of vanity, it's all vanity. And there's nothing new under the sun in the book of Ecclesiastes. But here you have perhaps the most brilliant economic mind in our world today that is saying there are fixed, inviolable principles that make our world work. And a wise person is humble enough to allow herself to learn and to discern those things. They become gems that help her become more efficient and, and capable of dealing with those circumstances in life. And then there's the other kind of a person that's a fool and refuses to recognize them and will live without those without that knowledge, without that insight, will live a radical resistance and difficult life. Pretty amazing insight. Now, that's the first example. The second example that I want to give you is taken from the novelist Nicole Krauss. Krauss was invited to participate in an exhibition, an artistic exhibition recently, where 23 artists were um, asked to respond to letters that Van Gogh, had written. And in this exhibition, Krauss records a lucid and almost eerie description, very different than what we saw from Dalio, but a a description nonetheless that shows you how she perceives both our curiosity as well as the principles of the created order in which we live. Here's how she says it. It's a strange thing about the human mind that Despite its capacity and its abundant freedom, its default is to function in a repeating pattern. It watches the moon and the planets and the days and the seasons, the cycle of life and death, all going around in an endless loop. And unconsciously believing itself to be nature, the mind echoes these cycles. Its thoughts go in loops. Repeating patterns established long So long ago, we often can't remember their origin or why they ever made sense to us. And even when these loops fail over and over again to bring us to a desirable place, even while they entrap us and make us feel anciently tired of ourselves, and we sense that sticking to their well-worn path means we'll miss contact with the truth every single time, we still find it nearly impossible to resist them. We call these patterns of thought our nature and resign ourselves to being governed by them as if, as if they are the result of a force outside of us, the way that the seas are governed rather absurdly when one thinks about it by a distant and otherwise irrelevant moon. That is amazing. Amazing. Two little snapshots that take you into the inner sanctum of two human minds in our day that are writing or contemplating not only about this curiosity that seems so insatiable, but the conclusions that they've come to. For Krauss, very different than Ray Dalio, our curiosity causes our minds to look for patterns that must be violated or broken in order to free us from the destructive loops they create in our thinking and thereby entrap us in their well-worn paths, even though they fail us over and over again. That is radical. That is radical. And so the first part of the psalm in verses 1 to 6 presses in to the answers that we can provide our minds in regard to the taken from nature, what we can just see around us, the things that we can deduce and conclude simply by looking around. The second part of it, though, speaks to the answers from the Bible. In other words, this is the special revelation that doesn't fall on all men alike. This voice isn't heard by every human brain, but by some. He begins by this statement, this second section. It goes from verse 7 to 14 and shifts to focus on this special revelation that can only be understood from the Bible. And most people, most scholars believe that this description best typifies how God intends us to live. The first part tells us that there is a God. The second part tells us how we ought to live. Now, the first clause, the law of the Lord is perfect, in verse 7, describes David's overall perception of the sufficiency and the efficiency of Scripture. When he says it's perfect, it lacks absolutely nothing. That's what that disclosure meant. And so it's, it's capable of governing every aspect of our lives. Verses 7 to 11 utilize a number of different yet synonymous references to God's law. He calls it the testimony. He calls it precepts, commandments, and rules. And all those synonymous synonymous references, they, it's not cinnamon, Um, all those synonymous references, they yield, they show you how the law of God yields Profound benefit to the person who understands it and has the courage to apply it in everyday life. And it's very interesting in verse 11 he just tells you straight out what he believes. He said in keeping them there is great reward. Now in these verses he explains five benefits that come into the lives of those who follow them. The first one, reviving the soul, refers to a renewed vitality and strength. That, that, that actually pervades the entirety of your whole, your whole being. Secondly, making wise the simple refers to a person who does not understand, and yet there's something about the law of God that moves them from inexperience and, and lack of perception and understanding to a capacity to really navigate life entirely different than the fool. The third part, rejoicing the heart, simply means it brings happiness and joy the fourth part enlightening the eyes is best understood to be an increase in knowledge and wisdom that would otherwise would not be discernible now what this is doing is making you unbelievably perceptive of things that can be learned now when i was younger and my brother and i used to hunt a lot my brother had this crazy keen eyesight and we'd go hunting and he would we could be standing there and he says can you see those elk up on the hill and He's like, no, I can't. He says, they're right there. I said, I know they're right there, but I can't see them. And sooner or later, he would, he would get his arm lined up and he'd move over so I could look right up his finger. And he's like, oh, but there, there, there they are. This enlightening the eyes is depicting a capacity to see where you couldn't see before, a capacity to discern. Um, Think about, uh, for those of you that have have done a lot of study and a lot of educational work, there's a certain type of benefit that comes from knowing one of your professors or teachers. You know what she wants on the test. There's certain things that you can look at five pages of a syllabus and you can tell that's the thing she's going to ask. And you don't have to memorize five pages of single space notes. It's just this one point that's a center point. That's what this is, a capacity to see things when you couldn't see them before. They're obvious to you. The fifth and final benefit is, by them your servant is warned. And this is depicting not only that you live in a potentially destructive and debilitating creation, it gives you a warning that can prevent that type of toll taken on your life. Bad decisions, destructive decisions can be avoided when you understand the Bible. So that brings us to this final part of verses 12 to 14. Here there's a declaration of the transcendence of the realities that one can learn from the Bible. Who can? He, he poses this rhetorical question, who can discern his heirs? He's talking about God. And the, the answer is no one can. And he's basically saying, almost what Job says, you need to put your hand on your mouth because you don't have the capacity to sit in judgment over Scripture. In other words, this, this is really strange. The way it comes, the way, the way it sounds in a counseling office is kind of like this. Well, I, I believe this about Christianity, but I, I can't believe that. It's like, well, let's talk about that. What is it that causes you to think this is true or this is not true? Well, I don't know, that's just the way I think. That's just the way I feel. Well, what that person has subtly done, no matter how sincere, is that they put themselves in judgment or estimation of all the scripture. And David said, you can't do that. No one can discern his errors. It's impossible. And he's speaking about this transcendent capacity that God has to explain things here. And he says, you you shouldn't dare to question him. But beyond that, he goes, he says... "Um, he said, declare me innocent from hidden paths. And then another clause, keep me back from, keep back your servant also from pre- presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. David knows that there is a capacity to get so entangled in sin that you're imprisoned by it. You can't get out. Of it. Now, without question, I'm not looking at any of you. I know that there's some of you here that are there. You've been there. You, 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 it wasn't, but a few years ago, you stood in an, in an altar like this and you promised fidelity in a marriage and you have no capacity to, to deliver on that. You've tried to break a pornographic or some addictive practice and it has you in its grip to the point that you are entirely incompetent to break its grip. And David is praying for that. This is a plea to God that it would not have that kind of mastery over him. He goes from there and he says, from that humble place that he's pleading with God, he said, bring it to bear in my life that I might be blameless and innocent of great transgression. And then let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, is both a plea and an act of worship. He's signing the signature on the end of this psalm is basically him saying, I know you're it. You're the one that possesses all of this. Now, what, what's interesting to me is that if we step back, if, if you look at this as a unit, there are very few passages of Scripture that, are more, that, that more clearly express how Christianity actually answers the questions about whether God exists, why we are here, or how we should live. And Psalm 19 provides each of us with faith assumptions, You see, those are the things that I explained in the beginning, and all of us have them. But Psalm 19 actually tells you some things that fit in those boxes. Whether there's a God, why you're here, who you are, how you should live. And it's giving you those faith assumptions, and those faith assumptions are not universally held today. And you can't prove them. But nonetheless, you've chosen to hold on to them. You've chosen not to let those slip out of your your faith. And that's not an easy thing to do. To be, we sang that song, it's, it, 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 it takes a remarkable courage to doubt your doubt. It takes a remarkable courage to admit your doubt. Those of you that are hanging on to your faith by your fingernails, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But it's not until you lean into your doubt, it's not, to, it's not until you actually begin to doubt your own doubting that you can come through it with what Tim Keller says, with any, any kind of answers or conviction that would withstand the questions of an intelligent skeptic, much less your own adversity. But you must. You see, the ultimate question about all of this that we're each facing is not whether we possess insatiable curiosity. That's a given. The question is really, what are we willing to believe to satisfy us? to put it to sleep? You see, that's the real question. And every one of you is believing something. There's not a one of you in this room that in the ultimate sense of the word is an unbeliever. As Leslie Newbegin said, you cannot, cannot doubt proposition A without a strong belief in proposition B if you're struggling with Christianity, it's because there's a place in your soul that has a strong belief in something else. What is that? What is that? You can find more audio as well as study questions and sermon notes at l2church.com. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to shoot us a message through the contact form on
0: our website. Thanks for listening.